This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. Hi guys, Robert here. At Mentors for Military, we recognize the need to connect veteran businesses to help them succeed by bringing awareness to their products and services and to help them grow through training and development. That's why we created Veteran-Owned U.S. Directory at VeteranOwnedUS.com. We understand the difficulty that's out there of being a veteran entrepreneur. We also understand that funds are tight and during the times of shrinking profits, marketing and advertising is difficult. Let us help you bring awareness to your business. Head over to VeteranOwnedUS.com today and use the code EARLY100 where the first 100 businesses who list with us will receive 20% off the price. For a one-year plan, that's a total of three months free. As a veteran-owned business, your business is our business. List your business at VeteranOwnedUS.com today. This is the Mentors for Military podcast. I want to first start off with letting the audience get to know a little bit about you and your back history and backstory and stuff. Now, you're down in Orlando now. So did you enlist from the South Side, you know, or, or from Florida or was it from someplace else? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Southwest Florida, Fort Myers area. I enlisted straight out of high school at 18 years old. Went in the Marine Corps, uh, joined the infantry, so 311. Yeah. It's your big, basic grunt. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. See, being in Florida, you didn't go to Camp Pendleton. You ended up going to... Good, good old Jacksonville. Yes. Uh, Camp Lejeune. Camp yep. Lejeune. Okay. And how long was your training there? For, uh, well, for, for boot camp, it was Paris Island. And the, the Marine Corps boot camp is about 13 weeks long. And then you go to SOI and hit the fleet we were actually i was in three nine so it was a wartime battalion they brought us back we did the first deployment uh three nine ninth marines so one nine two nine and three nine all came back the ninth marines the last time it was activated was vietnam then they brought it back for us to go to iraq in 2009 and then i went to afghanistan in 2010 to marja and 10,011 and then my guys did one more deployment and then they shut down ninth marines again Okay, so how long after you ended up going through one station unit training or through all of your, uh, you know, 0311 training and everything before you ended up getting deployed? I was 18 years old in Iraq. Holy crap, man. <laughs> so, I mean, you were fresh out of training and ended up going over. Yeah, yeah, I was a young young kid, honestly. But Yeah, that had to be a pretty uh, crazy experience, especially since you were in a pretty heavy area that they ended up uh, deploying you to, right? Iraq in 2009, where we went, it was nothing. I mean, you're obviously still in danger, but it was nothing uh, like obviously with the 2003 to seven in Iraq, you guys know. Yeah. But uh, for Afghanistan, 
2010, definitely, and 2011. Uh, Marsha was a very kinetic area. So at that time, I was 20 and then had my 21st birthday over there, too. So okay. I was a team, team leader in charge of uh, three guys and pretty much just got dropped off by helicopter or platoon. And then we ended up splitting off into two different squads. So you're living with, you know, 15 Marines and then A&A guys. Were you, either of you guys, Mike or Paul, in that same area? Yeah, I, we actually shaped Marja in 2009 in advance of the Marines coming through. So that was Taliban city, man. <laughs> no, no lie when Doug says that that was a highly kinetic area. Yeah. Now you're That's talking, definitely an understatement. You're talking 3rd Battalion, 75th, just for the people who yep. are listening. Yeah. yeah. So um, you guys had already set, you said you set it up? Yeah, we, we were doing what was called shaping operations. So we were uh, flying in on helicopters and then walking into the city, into Marja City, and just fighting our way through, going after some HVTs. There wasn't a lot of fidelity on the ground at the time. We just knew sort of where the hornet's nests were, and our job was to try and kick those up and hopefully soften that area up for uh, the larger, more conventional efforts that were coming through behind us um, in the following months. I don't know if that worked very well. I mean, I know we kicked a bunch of ass, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I know the the Marines that followed, they um, they had a, a big fight on their hands from what I've heard. I'm wanting to say, was that also the same time period that there was at least one Medal of Honor awarded within the Marine Corps? Yeah, so I actually, I've, I've met Kyle Carpenter. Um, he was in 2-9, which is okay. what I was mentioned about 9th Marines earlier. So yeah. he, he went to Afghanistan a little bit before my unit got there. My unit got there in the fall of 2010. Okay. And uh, he he's the one that he he jumped on a grenade on top of a roof when it landed next to his buddy. And, uh, yeah, it, I don't know if you've gotten a chance to read his book, but it's really good. And he's just a very down-to-earth guy. His book's called uh, You're Worth It. Oh, I don't know that I've read that. Mike, are you familiar with that? No, I haven't. I haven't read it. I know who he is, um, and I know, man, most people don't jump on a live grenade and live. So it's a pretty, pretty incredible story. He was just in that Super Bowl commercial too with Nate Boyer. Yes. Um, oh, with the uh, Johnny yeah. Cash, Johnny Cash song. That was him. Okay. Um, I didn't put the two together. Yeah. Okay. And when you came back, did you immediately transition out, or was it a period of time you stayed uh, garrison? Yeah, I helped train some of the newer guys that were coming in, uh, kind of shape shape our guys into leaders, and then moved to Orlando, go to UCF, and uh, got my bachelor's and master's in business over here. Yeah, so you ended up using the GI Bill as soon as you got out, or did you, did you go to school any time while you are on active duty? No, I, I used the GI Bill. Okay. it all schooling into the 36 months that they give you. Oh, my God, man. So you ended up going back-to-back then, undergrad and then grad school. I did. Yeah. Was it in business school that you decided to become more of an entrepreneur, or is this something that you had already started as soon as you made the transition? Because I'm curious how that transition went for you. Yeah, so I fell in love with craft beer while I was in the military. Go figure. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, you know, we don't drink at all while we're in there. But I always got teased a little bit because I was starting to gain a palate towards IPAs and stuff. Yeah. It wasn't very popular at that time. And when I got out, I started homebrewing. And yeah, it all kind of catered together with getting the master in business degree. I went to a homebrewing club and met my business partner, Chris, over there. And we kind of, we did all the construction here. We brew all the beer. We're a very small staff. I have five employees. So 
yeah, it's it's been a ride. You know, it's funny because there's a couple um, companies here locally that are very much the same way. They they started off in a club. They end up meeting one another. One of them ends up being more of a brewmaster type of individual, you know, that uh, or has gotten certified or whatever, gone through the type of training. And then they end up really formulating a company, crafting a specific number of taste of beers based on the club members that they, they gave it out to, friends and family, you know, they'd host big parties. They try to figure out what's uh, cool about it or they, they convince a restaurant or two to to get their beer and stuff so they could get a, a kind of a taste test. And then that's when they really hone in and get really good at it. So what was your, what was kind of your path? I'm curious to know from, um, from just a thought, you know, to really execution of this whole thing. So like, just like you just said, I'm definitely more of the business side of things. And then Chris is the head brewer. Uh, we brew all the beer together, but recipe development and all that stuff, he's, he's just born for it. So I actually, originally went up to him with my business plan to get his opinion nice. and then I saw all my faults and I make up for his faults and it just worked out that way. Yeah. Ever since, you know, been like hubbies. <laughs> so was it one of these things that he had the, uh, the recipes already and you were just kind of fine tuning them as a business side of it or, or who basically owned the recipes and the, and the beers or did you both formulate that together? We both have our own recipes, okay. and then ever since then, even on the big scale, so we're brewing about 300 gallons of beer a day. We kind of already know what it's going to taste like, so we don't do any small-scale recipes, and we're constantly changing. So there's not really set key besides maybe two beers that we have on the list, like base lager and our Hefeweizen and everything else. We just make sure we have styles. We got hazy IPAs, beer that tastes like beer, beer that tastes like brownies or cake or pancakes what have you just it's really good time we have a couple beers sit down after a work day and just let the creative fluce, uh, creative juices flow and think of you know will people perceive with this will they like it all that good stuff well mike's our beer connoisseur of the of the group for sure hazy ipas anyway yeah well i, I think you I, drink I a lot of them though. Tastes like brownies. Yeah, I don't either. Well, he was actually talking about a tiramisu, uh, tiramisu beer that he's uh, brewing right now. Dark, dark beer or a porter or something. Yeah, that one's a stout. A stout. Yeah, my wife would love that. I, she likes those kind of beers, and and I like all the hazies from around around the country. But you know, I was in Orlando last summer, and and I didn't, I couldn't find a big brew scene down there. I, so I, I was going to ask you. What, what that's like down there. Cause what I found, I mean, I, and I'm probably going to hit the breweries wrong. I was just going through my untapped app while you guys were talking. I hit sea dog while I was down there, drank everything that they had on tap Southern tier. Some of these might be Tampa Bay areas and six point, um, what I would find while I was down there. But I, I, I was there for a week. Robert, you were down there at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I, uh, I, I just, I, I didn't, I didn't find a lot of what I would find out West Coast or even out here in Colorado. So I was kind of interested on your take on on what the Orlando beer scene's becoming. Yeah, so we're very lucky when we opened up. We're only about 14 months old. You look at Orlando; it has a huge population, but craft brewery wise, there's not very many. And then now they're finally growing. You know, we probably have 15 around here in the city limits, but. You compare that to, say, San Diego, where I just came back from Asheville yesterday. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they're, yeah, they're beating us by four. Like, yeah, absolutely. Oh, my God. Asheville, North Carolina, is is 
almost becoming a mecca, I think. Um, you know, I mean, I went up there and and spent probably about four or five days, and we just did like a, you know, a hop, you know, every, spent about eight, 12 beer uh, breweries and stuff per day type of thing, and just trying to visit them um, and try to experience the different types of crafts that were in each one of them. And it was, it was really amazing to me because when we got done in one section, they were like, no, 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 there's actually like, I think they said five, 10 miles down the road, there's a totally another, you know, grouping of breweries that are there. And I thought, well, hell, that's going to have to be another time period because I, I just don't, I ran out of days. So it's just really interesting how these things are coming about because I can remember if you go back, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, 12, 15 years ago, you didn't find very many. You know, there were certain pockets, you know, like Denver, you know, that area had some, I think Salt Lake had a little uh, Oregon, you know, out there um, had a few and stuff, but it was just hit or miss, you know. And those, those breweries are huge now. Yeah. I mean, you look at, you look at Breckenridge Brewery, you look at um, uh, Ballast Point, you look at, uh, what'd you just say? Uh, Another one up North, uh, Sierra Nevada. Yeah. Those, those breweries from 20 years ago, uh, which were really cutting edge are now huge markets. And um, I even think Ballast Point got bought by somebody a year or two ago, didn't it? One of the big companies. Yeah. One point two billion dollars. Yeah, we awesome. had we had a local one here in Athens, as a matter of fact, in Atlanta, uh, Terrapin Brewing that got yep. got bought out as well. So I think that's what we're starting to find is that when these big companies start recognizing that the small guys are taking market share and they have something that people are really latching onto, well, then that's when they come looking for you. Um, now that, that may not be your goal and stuff that you have down there, Doug, but I mean, it's a real big opportunity because I think people are moving away from, um, you know, going out and getting the, the regular style, you know, your, your, uh, Budweiser's, your Miller's or those types of things. And they're wanting to get into the craft scene because they get a chance to taste something that might be a little bit more fruity, you know, might be, um, less fruit, more hop, you know, and, and you don't get that kind of mix by just sticking with one brewery typically no no not at all and we we'll we'll have new customers come in and we'll tell them to go visit other breweries as well because if you like good beer you're not just going to go to one brand you're going to go to wherever you find the beer that you like so i'm curious then i want to rewind back to the entrepreneurial side and the the business um you know case and stuff that you had the business plan so when you when you started this whole dream and and how you wanted to do it what was it that uh, you said the the drinking and stuff, but I'm just saying, thinking of more of like from a business perspective, what made you think with all of these craft breweries being out there that your yours was going to be successful? How was it that you were thinking that you were going to be able to market it in such a way that you know you'd live beyond the first twelve months, which obviously you've done because that's usually the the most critical period. Yeah, so there's a few factors there. You know, we we had a solid business plan. We had first movers advantage in Orlando. There's not very many when we first opened up, maybe six at the time. And then also we have we have a cool niche, you know, veterans, first responders. But at the same time, we don't ostracize anyone. If you're a civilian, you walk in here, we don't have it in your face. But yeah, if you look up, you'll see Constantina wire up on the wall. We have everyone's unit patches. So if you and our <laughs> our tap handles are made out of quad rails. So. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you've obviously latched on because it's called, uh, for those who don't know, as Tactical Brewing. So, uh, Tactical Brewing, then, as you, you know, you've mentioned, you've actually taken advantage of that and tried to, to merge the two worlds. So, um, because you started off down there and you didn't have much competition, 
it's been really good. But now that the scene is probably starting to pick up a little bit more, because usually when their one comes into town and they see the opportunity, other ones start coming up. So if you are in a club, as you mentioned earlier, then some other guys are going to go, hey, if Tactical Brewing is doing it, we could do it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And we have people come in all the time that are looking to open up a brewery. But for us, you know, the more the merrier, the customers will decide which ones they like. And yeah, we have plenty of room for growth. It's not going to get saturated in Orlando anytime soon. People who are listening to may want to know, like from an entrepreneurial start, um, what what was it that how did you get your funding? You know, where where do those sources come from? Was it something that you started off with your own seed money and it ended up developing into something bigger? What was those uh, mechanisms that helped you actually get started? Yeah, it was definitely rough. You know, I, I didn't have very much money. I had used all my savings and stuff from deployments and being in the military and GI Bill and taking advantage of all that. I put that aside and used that towards the brewery, but then I also took out an SBA Veterans Advantage loan for about 250000 So it was, it was important for us to not take on big investors right away. That way we can have full control over our mission statement and the quality of the beer instead of worrying about, you know, turning turning and burning a profit. Yeah. And like right away we our big thing was we didn't have any guest taps. It was all only beer that we brewed in house. So we were only open one day a week for a little bit, then two days and three days, now four days. And then we're gonna add a fifth here pretty soon and more tanks because right now the biggest problem is we can't really brew enough beer to keep up. We have all these apartments and stuff that live above us, like Kevin for <laughs> from 4 p.m. to midnight every night he'll sit there and he'll drink base lager and uh, he'll just walk off and go in the elevator and we have a special <laughs> song that we play for him and he goes upstairs and passes out he's 74 <laughs> years old and <laughs> for his birthday we took him to go jump out of a plane with us but that's awesome yeah that's really cool so you know you were talking about the uh, the small business loan and everything how difficult was it for you to get that yeah, they don't make it easy. It's not like, you know, you hear this this unicorn while you're in the military about, you know, oh, yeah, if it's as a veteran, you get a lot of benefits and stuff like that. You have to you have to really search for it. Once I, I once I started trying to pull funding, I went to a bunch of banks and pitched it in my suit and everything like that. But if you go to the SBA website and you have an idea and you want to do an SBA loan, they actually have a portal that you can input a, a small version of, of your business plan and then they'll shoot it out to banks and the banks reach out to you instead of you having to go all over. Oh, that makes it really nice. Now, there's a yeah. lot of organizations. I think there's even a couple nonprofits that are out there that really help you write a business plan, get the business funding and those types of things. Did you ever consider going and reaching out to them to, to get some assistance through the process? I did. I talked to a few different, like UCF had a good startup company, but you know, what we were doing at the time wasn't going to create a lot of jobs right away. So that's a big thing that they look at. They look at, you know, how how are you going to, are you going to have money to put down that is parallel to the money you're asking for? And I was just a Marine veteran (laughs) with not much going on. You know, I kind of scraped by. We did, like I said, Chris and I did the construction here along with my fiance and a, few, and a bunch of Marines that would come and do work for beer. But yeah, we tore down all the walls. We built the place, did all the concrete, all the drains 
it was it was a stressful time, but you know it's it's been worth it so far. And I know we have a long ways to go, but we've just been very very blessed so far with uh, the positivity and, and the reaction from you know winning beer festivals and. Have you ever thought about going to UCF Science Department and saying, hey, listen, we can get a real good uh, opportunity here, bring your science, you know, early students over. This is protein. Might be a, a win-win here for you where they actually end up uh, using you guys as an incubator. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been trying to slip it in there a little bit. <laughs> Chris actually went to USF for a few courses because they're doing a whole brewing program over there. And oh, are they really? I, I was just making really, that up. I had no yeah. idea, really. Yep. Wow. Okay, well, so if anybody's listening to this and they're actually in a city that uh, you're wanting to break free, maybe go to the local university and see if they can't get you some kind of grant funding or seed money to help you out. Because uh, I, I just actually thought that might be a clear opportunity. And I only know that because... I helped build at one time frame a bioprocess manufacturing facility where the raw uh, material was bovine serum. And so it's, it's a protein. And as it went through and we, we made it into a, um, a liquid substance that basically was like miracle grow for cells. You know, that's what the product, the end product state was. But I remember at that time frame, the guy that was the engineer told me, he goes, listen, if this plant ever wanted to convert itself, and again, this is about, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, he goes, we could always brew beer. And we wouldn't have to make hardly any modifications to this whole structure and the whole makeup. We had return osmosis, you know, systems and stuff. We had um, stainless steel tanks. You know, I mean, it was just a, everything that we needed, basically, uh, the basic setup and stuff to go ahead and brew. It, uh, never happened, though, unfortunately. <laughs> but, but, Mike, I didn't know if you had any questions about some of the process and stuff. Not so much the pro. Well, I, I do have one process question because I, I, I haven't homebrewed in a long time. I do make mead and we make some wine here here at the house, but I, I I wondered what's it like to go from a five gallon carboy to a big steel tank where you're you're making commercially to to serve to customers. It's night and day. It's very different. So I was lucky enough, like like I had mentioned earlier, I met Chris and partnered up with him. He had a little bit more experience working at commercial breweries and uh, distribution. So he's very good at recipe development. So it doesn't just add up like two plus two equals four. It's two plus two equals four minus three times 10. Like it's just, there's so many variables uh, <laughs> at the large scale and we're constantly learning, you know, we've only been open about 14 months. So we're trying to make the best beer we can so far. I've gotten lucky with, with some awards and stuff like that, but. So it's not yeah, just it's taking your basic recipe and multiplying it like you're cooking then. So, you know, I mean, how much have you had to actually waste uses waste? With some wood, I'm going to knock on it real quick because we haven't had a dump in it yet. <laughs> oh, that's so, good. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, it's you're saying it's more of a trial and error a little bit, too, to get the perfection to 300 gallons instead of doing five. It's not just, okay, mu multiply it times, you know, 60. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's, like I said, very many different variables. So, uh, Temperature is different. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. pH levels. Everything you've got to really... Gotcha. Okay, so that's what I was kind of, I think Mike was also curious about too, because I think a lot of people go, well, I've been home brewing, you know, I've been making about a six pack, you know, or so. So how do I then take that if everybody loves it and I can at least get it to a, a five gallon, you know, keg, you know, type of thing, or, um, you know, maybe a full size keg, you know, or something and, and or a several of those. And what you're saying is, well, it, it's going to take a little bit of trial and error to get the recipe so that the quality is consistent across that. 
Yep, and then getting used to all the big fermenters and everything too. It's a lot different than carboys and and yeah, it's just trial and error really. And there's software that helps out too. Yeah. Now, did you find that the um, club that you belong to were they of any help uh, for like bouncing ideas or brainstorming and stuff like that through some of this process, or was it just really the two of you that? So believe it or not, it's actually we'd go around and talk to other brewery owners, and they helped out a lot. So, but we've been lucky enough to host that club. No, they opened up a different homebrew club, but yeah. host them and teach them now that we actually get to brew at a commercial level. Okay, and that's that's cool. The the scene here in Colorado Springs with with local brewers is is really the same. Anytime somebody's branching out, they've got guest brews coming in. You know, the brewmasters from one brew pub come down to another and they do things together. Um, and I was I was wondering, I've I've run across a handful of uh, veteran brew pubs across the country. And I was wondering if there's a similar kind of club, I guess, amongst you veterans that are now running your own brew pubs, if you've gotten together, shared ideas, kind of mutually support each other. Uh, not yet, but we have we have veteran brewers come in here all the time. And, you know, some some companies are veteran owned and then they don't uh, throw it out there. So a big, big portion of, of what we do here is I wanted to attract veterans first getting out. And first responders and just being able to network here. We live in, it's a pretty good neighborhood. So they can, you know, network and get some good jobs out of it. Obviously, I'm, you guys all know it was those first few months when you first get out. That's very difficult, especially if you go back home. You don't have any of your buddies that you went to war with. And, um, we can at least provide a nice foundation for them to be successful. Well, that's why I can definitely see individuals reaching out to you and going, hey, okay, th- that's me. You know, I'm kind of in this boat and I've got an idea. Maybe it's not even brewing, but it's an idea. You've already kind of, you know, gone from, again, just having a business plan to actually executing it and obviously doing very well. So, you know, I- I'm sure a lot of veterans would just find that valuable information in and of itself. Uh, we host veteran nonprofits all the time too. So we pretty much will provide the beer and then just let them do the work. You know, they network and we did the silkies hike. And like you said, no one uh, really complains about free beer. So <laughs> really cool that you host nonprofits. So you use your brewery as sort of a venue for them to come together all the time. That's freaking awesome, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, Rob, we talk about this all the time. It's those first few months, that first year getting out, just networking, finding a way to find a job. That's really cool that you're doing that, man. Yeah. Did uh, you did you find it? That, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying I appreciate it because that was definitely my personal hardest time was just I moved back to live with my sister down in southwest Florida. I hadn't really hung out with a lot of my friends in years. And, you know, it's it's different transitioning back into civilian lifestyle especially if you don't have people to kind of help you out i'm also curious about how was it that you determine what craft beers are the ones that you should stick with at least to be your baseline so we knew that from a business standpoint you kind of want spread right everyone has a different palate you need something light you need something for those people that just drink budweiser bud light and kind of corrupt them a little bit like kevin who i mentioned earlier the guy that lives above us that's all he'll drink still he'll still he'll taste other stuff but he just goes back to the what I, well, i'm drinking it right now so i don't blame him but and the second time we brewed that one we entered it into a competition here and it actually won gold for best of florida and we're like oh yeah i guess we'll have to keep brewing that one but <laughs> everything else is pretty much just as long as we have certain styles and have something for everybody across the board and then of course us having fun with it too 
Now, did you start off with like an open tap room or something like that that allowed people to kind of come in and give a rating? You know, because I know one brewery um, that I've, I'm familiar with has it to where like a Tuesday night, uh, they, they actually allow experimentation kind of thing. You can come in, try a couple of beers, you know, you get a rating card, that type of thing. We actually started partaking in these little beer fests against professional breweries as quote unquote home brewers under the name of Tactical Brewing. So we're still brewing either at our friends' places or on our little small systems, and we we won a couple competitions. We actually got investigated by uh, <laughs> this, the state because they thought we were doing this large operation and not paying taxes on it. So they came by and they saw that we still were in the middle of construction, but that kind of gave us a lot of free consumer feedback. That way, when we went to grow, brew on a large scale, we're like, okay, this, these brands already have a following. This style is what's popular. And we had that kind of baseline statistics to go off of. Yeah, no, that's great. Holy cow. And the the fact that you guys thought about that, because I think, again, you know, I'm I'm trying to focus on individuals that maybe listen to this and maybe they are or they're not beer drinkers. But there's lessons here that you're describing for any entrepreneur to lay the right foundation. You, you've really done well in again, taking the whole process and, and figuring out a way to make a successful business work. No, thank you. Thank you. We, I mean, like I said, we got a long ways to go, but one day at a time. And then I think a big thing that has worked out for us is Chris and I never get complacent. We're always wanting more and more and more. I'd like to be more successful, make the better beer better. We don't sit there and be like, Oh, this is perfect. I don't want to change anything. We're always constantly trying to make the beer better. Well, scalability is always one of those issues with a lot of companies. You know, how do you, they scale it properly, right? And so it's not just the beer and the product itself that you're talking about, but it's also what is the right timing, you know, and, and when do we make those types of decisions that you're describing there so that you don't put yourself right out of business? Yep. Um, I think that's a challenge that a lot of companies go through. It's, yeah, it's, for what, sure. Yeah, one of the biggest ones is just scalability. You know, they don't have to scale it right. And you were saying, you know, you've got five employees. So when do I make it seven? When do I go to 10? When do I go to 15? And when is when is that going to start affecting my profit margin? Yeah, and you'll find Chris and I bartending a lot too. But they throw a block party in the front about once a month. And all these people living above us. So our biggest problem is just not being able to make enough beer. So it's quicker than we anticipated, but definitely worth doing our next expansion and opening up more and being able to do more can releases, bottle releases, fun stuff like that. Yeah. Very cool. Now, how was it that you got connected with Chelsea and um, Hunter seven foundation? <laughs> Someone had mentioned, I guess one of my bartenders told them that my lungs were pretty bad and that I had surgery on my throat from, you know, just all the burn pits and everything overseas. So yeah, I had a little while back, I couldn't eat food without it choking. Like I, choke and I lost like 20 pounds they came in and they first they did an endoscopy and then they went back and stretched it all out and now I did have to take omeprazole every day so that it doesn't affect like the scarring inside of my throat right and so yeah that's kind of how that started and I went over and I had a beer with them and they told me all about Hunter 7 and linked me up with you and yeah, yeah. no it's it's crazy how it works but no it, it like, is it is crazy I, I know that Mike actually got a letter uh, not that long ago about burn pits and stuff and wanted you to go and take additional tests and stuff. I don't know if you received the same thing, Doug. I didn't get one. Um, Paul, I don't know if you got one, but Mike was special, I guess. So Mike, I got it. I got it the week after Hunter seven was on the show and I swear to God, <laughs> there's something happened and, and the stars lined up, but I'd, I'd registered for the burn pit registry 
I think when I retired, man, I, I just saw it on the VA website and I, I filled it out. But I, I swear to God, within a week of that show, um, they had an opening in uh, Golden and a guy from the Golden Clinic. There's a there's four people that work there uh, in in this this particular environmental science department. And he goes, yeah, we got some openings if you want to come up and uh, and we'll get you in. And it, that that was the best physical I've had, I think, since since I went to free fall school back in the 90s. Really? I mean, it was so comprehensive. It, it was probably two hours of one on one just talking about medical history with a doctor. He made multiple diagnoses that he couldn't do. Hmm. But this this guy was was on honestly been on an old World War Two carrier. Um, and, and he was, he, he'd seen, he was a Navy doc, but had seen service members for years. And all the things that I was telling him that had gone undiagnosed in my history, he was like, he'd write it down. Okay. Go tell your doc. You've got this. Okay. Go tell your doc. You've got this. And I have done follow-ups since then. So aside from the burn pit registry, which they've, they've developed a good, I think, bit of data uh, on a lot of us that, that have been exposed, um, you know, I just thought it was the best, the best one-on-one chat I've had with a doctor because he's not worried about billing hours. He's not worried about how much time we have. I was booked for half the day, so you know, in and of that's a lot of blood work. You got to do this pulmonary exam and everything, but it was it was just a good test. Anybody, I would say, if you're listening, you haven't had it, register, and if you can get in to have that um, at least baseline physical done, uh, that way, if anything does come up later, you've you've got that. Yeah, sounds like, Doug, that's something that you want to take advantage of as well. Absolutely. And on your previous episodes that I've listened to, I love how you bring these things to light. I think it's very important. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, because, I mean, we didn't realize it, honestly, when we first ran at 107 Foundation, the importance there. Because, um, you know, we just thought, all right, they're they're doing some great work. They're collecting a lot of data. They're going out and talking with, um, you know, the Senate and the House and members of that to try to get support. But then when you started seeing a lot of the stuff that they actually were doing, and I spent a lot of hours on the phone with Chelsea and having conversations with her, um, they are very passionate about this. And this is something that's so, so new to this generation. You know, again, we keep mentioning on episode after episode that it's like the new Agent Orange. Um, it is the Agent Orange for this generation. And I don't think people are taking that seriously. You know, I don't think they understand what that really means. And they may not until several years go by. But yeah. obviously, as thorough as, as Mike's physical was, it, it should show you right there. You know, this wasn't a VA physical that's just determining whether you have an ailment that they should cover. You know, they were actually doing a very thorough examination to see if there's something there. Um, I'm sure they were rolling in and out other ailments like you were talking about. They probably recognized things. Hey, go go see your doctor about it. That may be totally not associated with the burn pits. But that's how they're trying to weed that out to determine what what are these chemicals that you're being exposed to that's coming through your skin, it's coming through your breathing, you know, whatever that's actually going to affect you potentially long term. Pretty scary. I think I think another interesting thing, at least at least my experience with them was they were they were interested in locations that I'd served that had even open air burn pits, not not the big incinerators. Uh, but but all the remote locations in Africa, um, former Soviet bloc countries, that's just kind of natural out there, uh, that we were sent in the 90s and, and early part of 2000 to have interactions with the community. We were still exposed to a lot of these open air burn pits that aren't in the registry. So uh, at least from the soft background, that which a lot of us were, were in some of those remote areas, 
uh, I think they're going to start compiling a little bit of that list. If, if, if enough people get in the database, uh, that it'll expand kind of uh, at least the footprint on where potentially we've been exposed to those those toxins. Yeah, it's crazy. You don't even think about it at the time. But yeah, I remember trying to stay warm when it's 40 degrees in Afghanistan over a burn pit. And yeah. It's, yeah, we lived in mud huts, so you burn everything. It's Yeah. Jeez, I used to stand back behind in a, you know, an M60A3 or an M1 and inhale the diesel in order to get warm, you know. But it didn't matter because as long as the heat was there, that was better than the minus two degrees, you know, around you. So While you're on it, Robert, you should tell us about, you know, when you used to burn the piles of poo back in the <laughs> you got You got that detail, huh? We, see, I, I was lucky on my I wasn't uh, I wasn't quite a boot on my second deployment, so I got lucky and didn't have to do the shit detail so <laughs> it's, it's funny because chelsea was on here and i was describing i think on one of the episodes about back in the day when i was a kid you know even you know we didn't have a you know we were out in the road and, and stuff and so we didn't have a truck that came by and picked up our trash we took it down to a pit and burned it so you know i'd smelled the plastics and all of the different stuff and i could tell you almost the difference between what was burning at that time over another because you get used to the smoke going by as a kid you know and yeah. smelling it and such and, uh, man, her eyes got huge. You know, she was like, oh, my God, what the hell? You know, uh, but you didn't think about those types of things. And that's the kind of what we're talking about. You never consider that until you start seeing, you know, people that you serve with either passing away or having serious medical conditions. So this is this is a real thing. Well, I want to get back, though, to um, your your book of business and stuff. So what is next? What do you guys see as the next big thing that Tactical Brewing and you guys as entrepreneurs, how are you going to expand? And are you looking at, you know, um, a lot of people start taking on too much and looking at expanding their portfolio and going in different directions because they think those are great revenue streams or, you know, is the right uh, mix to, to keep it very narrowly focused? So I'm curious what you guys have kind of got planned, if you're willing to share some of that. Sure. So I will say that right now, distribution is very saturated. So that wouldn't be what we'd be looking at. The tasting room, you're paying for your overhead, your cost of goods sold, and you get that one-on-one reaction with people. So we would probably do another tasting room somewhere else. Okay. So that's something that you can set up at remote locations, right? Okay. So are you looking though, expanding outside of Orlando and maybe, you know, taking it to another state or something of that nature? Or are you guys already doing that? Right now, it we're pretty much we're concentrated on maxing this place out. If we did do it, it'd probably be in South Florida or somewhere within the state, just because we know the laws a little bit more. But we're not opposed to it. If it makes sense, then it makes sense. We have our little dream areas we'd like to have another tasting room at, but we're realistic as well. We we aren't trying to jump into anything before we're ready. Yeah, I know in a lot of locations, there um, the growler shops are starting to come up. You know where you can get uh, different breweries and stuff out of a growler. Uh, for those who don't know what a growler is, because I had to explain this here recently to somebody. You know, it's a small container that you know is probably about thirty-two ounces or so, sixty-four ounces that you can actually get uh, brew that's um, right out of the tap, as opposed to you know cans and those types of things, bottles. And um, so it's keg beer and people prefer those in many cases over, you know, beer that's been stored for long periods of time. And these other containers it just taste different, I think, in many cases and how it's packaged. And so um, when you start talking about distribution, though, for people who have kegs, kegerators, 
you know, um, in their homes or whatever the case may be. You also have to worry about the distribution of that material, how long it's going to sit in somebody's warehouse before it even gets picked up to get carried to maybe another warehouse before it gets on a truck and gets taken to wherever you're going to buy it from and kept in a refrigerator before you go and pick it up to go put it in your kegerator. And there's a lifespan of this beer. Yeah, yeah. And then not only that, go to public. Well, I don't know what you guys have. We have Publix down here for grocery stores. Mm-hmm. But you go and just see all the competition. So a lot of that beer is owned by Bush and Beth, too. And they just have they have the money to push it out there. So you're competing with them, essentially, when you're competing for shelf, sta- like shelf space. And then also, uh, when I sell beer here in the state of Florida, I have to sell it to a distributor who then sells it to a retailer. So right off the bat, they're taking a cut. Yeah. Well, for people who um, in some certain states and stuff, like I know Georgia, if you're have, if you have your own kegerator, you still have to go through a distributor and then somebody, like you said, a retailer, some other place that you can pick it up. I can't even buy it directly from distributors. Some places have it to where you can buy it um, from a distributor or you can buy it directly from the the brewery. You know, unfortunately, it's not that the case. You know, you have to you can buy small quantities, but you can't buy large quantities like a you know a small pony keg or something of that nature you know, five gallon. So it's kind of unfortunate for people who just like enjoying craft beer, you know, they, they end up going to these growlers or they have to come and purchase it directly from you at one of these sites. But if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking of, Hey, this is a real opportunity because I enjoy beer and I can create something and I can distribute it, you know, it, because my friends live in different places, you got to, you got to start thinking about the complexity of everything we're talking about. And again, it doesn't matter the product or the service that you're providing, Everything we're talking about goes across all spectrums here. So you're, you've you found a local niche of, of people who enjoy your product. You've honed your market to that, your product to that market um, segment. And you still got to remain fresh, though, because if you don't do something every once in a while that gives a spark, you're going to lose that market. You know, over yep. time, people get their palates, get used to a specific beer. And even though they may enjoy it, they like something new, at least today's age. So you've got to you got to always remain on the cutting edge of what's you know somebody's doing out there. Yeah, we always have to have new branding, new beers. We release at least a new beer once every week or two, and then can releases are a big thing here. So we can can the beer mobily, like because we don't have the money right now for our own canning line. They'll come in and they'll can the beer, and then we sell it that weekend right out the door. Stick to your core competencies, though. You know, again, I think this is where a lot of businesses get lost because they don't want to outsource. They think the costs are going to be too high. But if you factor it in right and you factor those costs within your your total product, um, you're essentially covering it anyway, as long as you don't put yourself out of the market. So, you know, and if you're not good at canning, if you're not do- good at, you know, bottling or whatever, then to your point, let somebody else do that. That's better. Yeah. You know? You try to carry all that equipment. Now you got to carry the overhead. You got to, you know, equipment that's going to go down. You got maintenance periods, a lot of complexity, a lot of costs. Yeah, right now we're we're wanting a canning line, but we're just not quite there yet. We're going to get some more tanks in here soon, and then after that would potentially be a canning line. Yeah. What, what's the advice that you would give um, some people that are looking to become an entrepreneur? Go in 110% or don't go in at all. You know, and you see that a lot on the, sh- the Shark Tank shows and everything where people always ask how much have you actually got the skin in the game? 
sweat equity and gray hairs to prove it. You know, it's you got to just grind. It's just a grind. I'm still working at it. You know, I don't have a life right now. <laughs> Luckily, my fiance understands, and uh, yeah, it's just working every day and just trying to constantly be better. People always ask me, "Were you afraid when you first did it? Were you afraid of failure?" I mean, of course, you have that before you put everything together. But if you're confident enough in in your product or your business, then you you need to just go for it and not worry about anything else. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, you you mentioned as somebody that's thinking about being an entrepreneur about going and getting two hundred fifty thousand dollars. You've got to pay that two hundred fifty thousand dollar loan back. So you've got to, you know, it's just not like you got free money that parachuted in and fell out of the sky or whatever, and you're good to go. Um, you better have a really damn good plan. Yeah. Yeah, you have to be confident. And it helped going to school with all these different people from different walks of life because I'd sit there and I'd stay after class. Like one of my professors used to be the CEO of Pillsbury and some guy, he's getting paid. This other professor I had, he's getting paid just for business plans. So I'd day after just get their opinion on everything and try to soak everything in because there's always something new to learn we use reddit all the time still and <laughs> yeah if you go to an investor or a bank without a business plan or all this stuff set in place they're just going to look at you and say yeah they're not going to take you seriously yeah yeah very very critical and, and you learn a lot of that to do that. there are organizations like i mentioned before where you can get a lot of this um you know that somebody will actually help you do it but the fact that you you had that schooling and mba um that's that's really helpful uh, but I would encourage other people to look at some of these other organizations if they don't want to have an MBA. They need help. There are organizations out there um, that uh, are willing to, to help you write a business plan, get the funding, do the things that you're you're needing, um, and that's part of their makeup and what they're they're designed to do. Well, Doug, I appreciate you coming on Mentorship Military and sharing about your you know path and everything to success. I hope you guys at Tactical Brewing are very successful down that area and basically take over that market down there and own it brother <laughs> i appreciate it thank you very much i'm honored for being on the podcast and yeah no keep doing what y'all are doing you're kicking ass i'll be following along i'll send you some beer too and let me know when you come into town 